Mankind has always had a fascination with the incredible. Engineering feats that defy belief, works of art that speak to the soul, scientific discoveries that change the world, scenes of nature that awaken our senses. We call them wonders. But the greatest wonders of all time were the miracles performed by one man almost 2,000 years ago. The world had never seen anything like it before, nor has it since. So let's be amazed again at the seven wonders of the world. I'm just still kind of in just like a glow of that worship this morning. Just what God has revealed to us, to his people, through worship. Oh man, it is amazing that God loves us so much that he would give us that. That joy of worship, that joy of that moment where we can stand together as his people and just declare how great his name is. Amen? I'm in a good mood this morning now, I tell you what. So, uh, my name is Chris, um, for those that don't know me, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Waterford. And a lot of you have been on this journey with Miranda, my wife and I, we've uh, become new parents, Sadie turned nine months, and let me tell you what, it has been a journey to get to this point. Uh, parenting is both the best and worst possible thing that could ever happen to you. Um, and it's just so filled with joy and heartache and pain. Um, our expectations going in, the things that we prayed for were so wrong. The things that we were focused on, we were praying, please God, have her, uh, give her f uh, 10 fingers and 10 toes. Oh, wouldn't that be great if she wasn't, uh, if she had 10 fingers and 10 toes. Uh, let her be uh, smart and healthy and happy. Um, help her come out a, a Wolverines fan um, because that's, you know, just normal stuff that you want your kid to succeed with. Oh, we were so wrong. Our expectations were shattered in that birth. 28 hours of labor. My poor wife had to endure. And then Sadie was a terrible sleeper. She wouldn't go to sleep no matter how much we bribed her with things. She didn't want a Jeep. She didn't want anything. We couldn't get her to sleep. And so for two to three hours at a time, we would be awake with her, and then she would fall asleep for two hours, and we would do it all over again in this vicious cycle for six months. And from that, what we didn't expect to happen is what came from that experience, and that was the mental health issues that we had. The things that we would go crazy about or the conflicts that we would get with each other over small things. They say the quickest way to get burned out is to get three hours of sleep and then have a fight with your spouse. That was Tuesday for us. And Wednesday and Thursday and every day. But let me tell you what, we got to a rock bottom place with depression and anxiety, and we realized that this was not the way that parenting was supposed to be. 
Our expectations of how our daughter came into the world were completely shattered by what we had thought of in reality. And we started out with some expectations. In fact, scientists that study these phenomenons, these sociologists, they have a term for this. It's called Paris Syndrome. Now, Paris, France gets this reputation as being this overwhelmingly beautiful and romantic city. In fact, if you were to Google beautiful cities on the planet, I'm sure that Paris would come up in nine out of ten of those lists. Paris is just this beacon to people who have never been there. I have to go there. It's so romantic. It's so beautiful. We just um, dream of walking down the boulevards and hanging out in the park and, and taking cafe uh, al fresco. Um, but here's the reality of Paris is that, and this is true, it's not that beautiful. Because it's a city of 12 million people. And it has the same problems that a big city has. It has violence. It has crime. It has poverty. It has dirt. It has a pollution problem. And so when people show up to Paris for the first time, usually they fly in to Charles de Gaulle and they ride the train into the city from the north. And the north section of Paris is some of the poorest places in France. They have these shanty towns set up where squatters who have no homes come and live. And these are the sites that greet people in Paris. And hundreds of people are actually hospitalized each year when they show up in Paris because their expectations of what they thought they were going to experience, this overwhelming joy, is reduced to rubble and crime. Their expectations cannot live up to the reality of what it is. And this morning, we are going to search and look and see in the passages of John 2. We come to the fifth sign in this seven wonders of the word. And in John 6, the disciples come expecting one thing. And the people come expecting one thing. And this expectation, unfortunately, has happened to Jesus' closest friends. This morning we call the sermon, Jesus had not yet come to them. An expectation of what Jesus had come to do, but the reality was not met. Now, in verse 15, we left the story last week. In verse 15 of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus reveals his generosity to the people there. But in verse 15, this sort of sets us up for what comes next. It says in verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now the disciples up to this point had been expecting a Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one. Messiah is just the promised person who had come to rescue them. And in Jesus, they saw him as the Messiah. And the people around who had started to believe as they had followed Jesus became his disciples and his students learning from him. And they had expected him to do something great. And in this moment, they're ready to make him king. They're ready to 
uh, to move away from the thumb, the oppression of the vicious Roman Empire. And Jesus had come to rescue them from that, from that moment, from that oppression, from an empire, from a people who had kept them under their thumb and rule. And now here was Jesus, just like the prophets, just like Isaiah, just like Moses, just like everyone before them had come to show the way. John the Baptist, just earlier in the book of John, had said, I am not the prophet, I am just preparing a way for him, one greater than me. And here Jesus was proving, showing the sign through his works that he was this one they talked about. So let's make him king, they say. Let's bring him forward. Let's take him to Jerusalem and install him in the king so all of our problems will be over, except that's not the way it was supposed to go. The reality of the situation is Jesus did not come on our terms. Jesus does not come to be installed as king of this world, but king of another place, to reveal that place to us. And so it doesn't happen. Jesus pushes his disciples away. He pushes the crowds away. And what does he do? He retreats even farther up the mountain. He disappears. And so now you have to put yourself in the situation of the disciples who had watched this man, who had believed this man was going to redeem them, who was going to bring them out of their poverty, bring them out of oppression of the empire, and he disappears up a mountain. What kind of savior is this? There are people here who need to be healed. You have healed people before. Why won't you do it now? They want to make you king. Why won't you do it? And so standing on that lakeshore, standing beside the Sea of Gal Galilee, they must have been so distressed. They must have been sick to their stomach. Who is this man that we've been following? Did we get it wrong? He has revealed himself to us. How could we have missed in the prophets this man And so there they were, standing for a Savior who had not yet come to them. And so we pick up the story in John chapter 6, verse 16. And this is what it says here. John writes, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. Now, some versions might say seashore. The words sea and lake are the same in Greek, so it doesn't matter a lake, it's a sea, it doesn't matter, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now, it was dark. So I just want to point out the chronology of the story just a little bit for you. They went down to the side of the lake and they waited for Jesus. Jesus said, I will come to you. And they stood there waiting with only one boat remaining at the shore. If he doesn't come now, he won't be able to come with us. So they waited and waited and waited, and Jesus did not show up. So they got in the boat and set off for Capernaum. And by now, it was dark. And every good sailor knows you do not go out on the Sea of Galilee when it's dark. Because what happens? Storms come up. That cold air from the Mediterranean blows in. It goes down through the valley and whips up the sea. And Jesus had not joined them yet. Verse 18. 
and this is exactly what happened. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. The word there, a strong wind was blowing, the winds, the water grew rough. It's the same idea of, uh, in, in Greek, we get the, the phrase stirred up. It's the same verb that they use when someone's waking up, when they're rising. So these, these were tossing and turning. The seas got very, very rough. Now here's an interesting thing. John does this thing a lot. His theme of darkness and light He points out the darkness in the very beginning of the book, in his gospel. He writes in John 1-4, light of the human race. This is speaking of the word. This is speaking of the word becoming flesh and coming down to dwell with people. This is Jesus, the light of the human race. And he continues in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And so we're talking not only about a chronological story here where it was evening and then it was dark, but John's doing something on a second level here that not only was their vision of who Jesus was growing dimmer, but now they felt in his absence that Jesus had gone, that darkness had now overcome them, that light was out of their lives. So thematically, this is important here. Because darkness is a big theme in John, and it's a big theme throughout the Bible, where we have living, people living in darkness, they don't understand who God is, they don't see him, and those living in the light have seen him as he's been revealed. Remember when God is revealing himself to Moses on the mountain, what does his face do when he comes down off the mountain? It glows. The light of God. We cannot escape it. But Christ's absence is in itself distressing to his disciples. This is one of the things that they have to overcome now. How are we going to get across this lake? Because they've been in this exact situation before. We know from a few chapters before, and in Matthew and Luke, we hear this story as well, that they were in the boat, but this time Jesus was with them. And he woke up and calmed the seas and everything was fine. But this time, when they're getting out on rough waters, Jesus is not there with them. So this absence of Jesus was something that they were going to have to overcome. This was something that they had not been in before, the absence of Jesus. Where was he going? And the problem is that Jesus' closest friends missed the point of his presence entirely. That Jesus was there with them on the land, and he was demonstrating his glory through these miracles, and yet they missed the point of his presence entirely. Because, see, here's what Jesus had been building up. And the first part of John is... Jesus comes on the scene and he is creating followers. He says to them, come and see. Can anything great come from Nazareth? Nathaniel asks Philip. And Philip says, come and see. 
The whole idea of Jesus' ministry is come and see. See for yourself what this is all about. See for yourself who I am. See for yourself what God is up to in the world. And the disciples missed the point entirely. They thought there was some sort of transaction that was supposed to take place. Because Jesus demonstrated his glory in the presence of people around him. He demonstrated who he was. And now, what was he going to do? There's no one around. He's pushed everyone away. So what exactly is going on in this story? Why has John told us this story? Why has he written this down? And this is what the disciples had to wrestle with. The absence of Jesus in their lives. In fact, they often missed it. Do you think later Jesus is going to actually curse the city of Capernaum because they missed the point entirely? When Jesus in John 11 rides into the city on Palm Sunday, he stands on a hill overlooking Jerusalem and he weeps because I was here in your presence and you missed it completely. Because your expectations of what you thought was going to happen, what you expected a Savior to do, what you expected a Redeemer of Israel to come and do, is not the way it's going to happen. And the disciples have to wrestle with this. Think about the road to Emmaus in the last chapter of Luke 24. This is after Jesus has died, he's been buried, and people are leaving Jerusalem on Sunday afternoon. Jesus has come back, but no one has seen him. There are rumors that people have seen him, but he's nowhere to be seen. And these two disciples are walking along the road discussing the events of what's going on. And Jesus just happens upon them, and it says that his identity was hidden from them, so somehow he looks different and we don't fully understand what that means. But they're talking, and Jesus is like, hey, what you talking about? And they're like, well, we're talking about everything that's been going on this last weekend in Jerusalem. Where have you exactly been? Did, were you not paying attention? And Jesus is like, tell me all about it. And so they start to explain to him all of these things that happened to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And they say to him, he was a prophet. He acted with power and spoke with power before God and all people. This is what they're telling Jesus, who's standing in front of them. And then they say this, our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping. What we expected to happen didn't happen. And so now as we leave the city of Jerusalem, when we go back to our homes, when we tell everyone about this, what we thought was true was actually not. Imagine their distress, their rejection, their overwhelming sense of not more of this. They kept missing it. But see, our affliction 
is their affliction. The things that are causing them problems are causing our heartache as well. But God has revealed himself to us and we are silent. That Jesus has come and we have a relationship with him and we sing and we worship him and we make our lives about him and yet we still feel like he is absent. That what we expected him to do has not happened. And the reality of the situation is we grow doubtful that this man is who he says he is and we're in a relationship with him and yet we don't feel fulfilled. We don't feel like we're living out everything that Jesus had intended. Our expectations of what a relationship with Jesus looks like does not meet the reality of where that is. And so their afflictions become our afflictions. And for 2,000 years, we just continue repeating the same thing over and over again. As humans, we fail to see that God is standing in front of us and we can't recognize it. Because we come to the story with one expectation. And God said that's not the point at all. And Jesus reveals to them, hey, these are the things that have happened. Come and see and judge for yourself that I'm not setting up a kingdom for here. I'm setting up a kingdom for God. I'm revealing God in all things. I'm not here to serve you. I'm here to serve God. That's going to look a lot different than what we think. Jesus seems absent in our lives and causes distress. Our world is filled with chaos and it obscures God. The things in our lives that we do, the things in our lives that we see, are filters that can't get us close to God. Think about in our relationships. In our relationships, we're just mired down with so many things that come in between about how we come with expectations, about how people can never live up to our expectations, what we think they ought to do, what we expect of them, what burdens we've placed on them unnecessarily. And then when they fail to live up to that reality, how often do we feel distressed? How often do we feel heartbroken that that relationship doesn't work out because of what we've brought to it? And these problems in our relationships are communication problems. And every communication problem starts with understanding what our expectations are of, e of each other. Think about in relationship with our families. How often we disappoint one another because our expectations of another person aren't met. Think about your role in, in, in your job. Think about how often you thought you deserved that promotion or you deserved to go to full time or you deserved that raise or you deserved that better parking spot. And when you don't get it, when that reality is hitting you in the face, we become bitter, we become angry people because we come expecting something. We expect something in return in these relationships. And the reality is, 
what exactly are we expecting from other people? Have we put things on them that they can't guarantee for us? Have we asked too much of other people? Or do we have to change the way we look at them? That this is not a transaction between people. That this is about pursuing them no matter what happens. That this is about pursuing relationships with people despite what happens. Dr. Jerome Frank at John Hopkins talks about our assumptive world. What he means is that all of us make assumptions about life, about God, about ourselves, about others, about the way things are. That's not the way it was supposed to be. Oh, I should have done this. This is what was going to happen in an ideal world. He goes on to argue that when our assumptions are true to reality, we live relatively happy, well-adjusted lives. But when our assumptions are distant from reality, we become confused and angry and disillusioned. It's this Paris syndrome all over again. We enter thinking one thing, and yet we're disappointed when it turns out to be foul. We expect God to show up in this one thing, to redeem this one part of our life. Man, I thought that God was in my relationship with my wife. I thought that God was going to heal my marriage, and yet he never showed up. I thought that God was in the sickness of my mother. I thought he was going to show up and heal her. And yet, if that was true... We wouldn't have anything to worry about. As Christians, we would just go about our business knowing that Jesus was going to swoop in and solve all of our problems. And when we look for a relationship with God in that way, in a transaction, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be disillusioned. And we're going to start to think like the disciples thought, who is this man that I have followed? Who is this man that I call my Savior. There's a great book written by a guy named uh, Sky Jathani, and it's called With, and I want to walk you through what he says are the four postures of how we relate to God. So he notices four ways that we as people relate to, to God. And so the first one is life from God. Life from God uses him to supply our material desires. The next one is life over God. We use him as a source of principles or laws or these are the way things are supposed to be. Let's put God in a box. The next one is life under God. We try to manipulate God through obedience to secure blessings and avoid the worst catastrophes and calamities of life. And the fourth way is life for God, that we use him and his mission to gain a sense of direction and purpose in our lives. These are the four main ways, and they're all prepositions from, over, under, and for. How do we relate to God, our posture of heart? What are we expecting from God? And we come into every relationship, even with people, not just with God, but thinking these things. 
Do we want something from them? Do we want to rule over them? Do we place ourselves under them? Do we want to live for them? Now, there's pieces of truth in all of these things, but just like so much of our lives, truth can be twisted. So when we use this truth in a way for gain, or when we use this truth as a way to define our relationship with God, or when we use this as a way to say, you know what, this is the way that things are supposed to be, and we take it to the extreme, God doesn't show up in the way we expect him to. And these are the four postures of our heart. We might not be in one more than the other. We might lean toward one box more than the other. But I'm here to tell you the truth. I've lived this way in my relationship with God. I've sought all of these things in my relationship with God. And every single time I've been disappointed when I live and think that way, when my heart is postured toward these things, I'm disappointed in God. Because my reality does not line up with my expectations. Our strength and comfort we will have in chaos will depend on our perspective of who Jesus is. Who does he say he is? And in fact, when the people who were listening to him and, and got fed during the feeding of the 5,000, they get in boats and they follow him the next day over to Capernaum. And they find him, and they say, where were you? And then Jesus calls them out on their behavior. He says to them, you are looking for me not because of the sign, but because you had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils don't wait for a transaction from God to give you something. Here's our heart posture. What's our heart look like when we look for God? What are we pursuing him for? Is it to get our fill? Is it to have more and more? Is it to grow in knowledge? Is it to understand the right way to do things? What is our heart posture for God? What is our expectation as we enter into relationship with him? See, Jesus does not want followers who have misconceptions about who he is. This is why he told parables to weed out the people who are just in it to receive something. He doesn't want people who use him for their own purposes. And so Jesus shows us who he is. He says, you don't have to guess who I am. I'm, I'm going to literally reveal myself to you. And you no longer have to guess. And so the story continues in John chapter 6, verse 19. John writes this. When they had rowed about three or four miles, that's about halfway. That's about half the distance that they're going. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. Yeah, yeah, they were frightened. Because no one had ever seen this before. 
In fact, this story is so unique that it hasn't even happened in Greek mythology, in Roman mythology, in ancient mythology. The gods didn't do this. They ran across the water. They hovered over the water. But nobody walks on the water. This was not something that had ever happened before. And so when you see something that's brand new, you're scared. You're frightened. You don't know what to think is going on. And again, when we get into situations where we don't know, when we're confused, when there is chaos, what we know about the man who's walking across the water toward us is going to tell you a lot about our reaction to him. Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Okay, yeah, right. You're walking on the water. How am I not supposed to be frightened by that? And it must have calmed them down because in verse 21 it says, they were then willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. Now, it doesn't say this, so I can't prove this, but I think a second miracle happens there. Because when Jesus approaches them, they're still three miles offshore. And he says, it is I, don't be afraid, and immediately they're on the shore. It doesn't say whether they brought him in. It doesn't say that he calmed the storm and the other, like the other stories do. What it tells us is that Jesus walked on the water, and then the boat appeared at its destination. That's two miracles here that were revealed to the disciples themselves. Now, I don't usually, I, I don't usually uh, teach Greek words when I preach because sometimes the Greek can get us a little mired down. But this is an important word, and it's so important because we're using it incorrectly. And so I want to correct a little bit about what it is. And it's the word apocalypse. And it's the same word in Greek, apocalypsis. And the word apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. So a lot of times we get that confused in our brains. Um, you know, we see a post-apocalyptic uh, movie or we read a book like that. Um, zombies, that's usually a post-apocalypse. Vampires, you know, things like that. The word apocalypse means literally from cover. So it means to reveal. The title of John's last book that he wrote, Revelation, is literally the Greek word apocalyptus. So apocalypse means to reveal. So when there is an apocalypse happening, something has been revealed. And so I would argue that all of the Gospels need to change. Because if we read them as apocalyptic literature, we're looking for something that has been revealed. And by the way, apocalypse does not mean the end of something. It means the beginning of something. So in Revelation, when, when the end is revealed, it's the end of this world, but it's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the new kingdom, the new creation, the new heaven and earth. They are beginning. 
So when Jesus comes to this earth, when he comes as a baby, something now has been revealed. Something important has been revealed that gets us to stop and pay attention. What is being revealed here? Something new is taking place. And Jesus comes to show his disciples that here is something new revealed to you. Now, I am in your presence. Jesus is here. And it's not that he's come to do these transactions. It's not that he's come to redeem. It's not that he's come to do these miracles. All those things are great. And yes, they're a part of the ministry of Christ. But what Jesus has come to do is reveal God. He is here to reveal God. Paul writes in Ephesians about the mystery being revealed in Jesus that had been hidden in all of these things for such a long time. And finally Jesus comes and reveals that mystery. And let's say it another way. How does God reveal himself to us? As Jesus. It's not Jesus revealing God. It's God revealing himself through Jesus. As Jesus. And this is why the disciples missed the point. Because Jesus was a great prophet. And he was a great man. And he was a great human. And he was the greatest of all of these things. But he is God. And he's come to say that the story has just started. And you're at the party already, so celebrate and act like it. And he keeps crying because we keep missing the fact that we are here and he is here. And now let's celebrate the new kingdom. What could we do with the new kingdom in hand? Jesus overcomes uncertainty by bringing peace. How? By revealing himself to be God. That the greatest thing that we could see in Jesus is God himself. And if we see anything other than that, we're missing the point. All those things are great. I don't want to discount them. People come to Jesus for a lot of reasons. But when we stay for those reasons, we're going to be disappointed. But when we come to see Jesus as God, as he's been revealed to these disciples here, that says so much about a God who wants to be with us. That says so much about a God who has created us that just doesn't want to stay up on some lofty mountain away from the crowds, but can hear us in our distress can see the disciples on the sea in rough weather and come to them and reveal himself. When he says, it is I, that's the Greek phrase that is the same equivalent in Exodus 3.14. When God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am who I am, it's the same phrase that Jesus uses here. Jesus reveals himself to be God, to be the divine name. He's not acting on the authority of God. He's not acting with his will in mind. He is God. And this is the expectation. This is how we need to change. This sign, as well as all of them that we've studied in the book of John, are meant to do one thing, and that is reveal 
who Jesus is. That's it. One thing only. Healing is great. Rescuing is great. Raising the dead is great. But they all point to a greater truth that sometimes we can miss because we're so caught up in all the things going on. And John wrote the book at the end, he says, so that you may believe. But I think when Eugene Peterson wrote the message translation of the Bible, I think that he got the heart of John even better. This is how Eugene Peterson in the message interprets this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory of God with our own eyes. The one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. And when God acts, it will be in a way that will give you a higher sense of his glory, of who he is. And take these waters, for example. If we need any more proof that this is who he says he is. We use the principle of first mention in the Bible. So where do we have chaotic waters that God is on? In Genesis 1, 2. Very beginning. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness... There's the word dark again, was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And what John and what Jesus and what everyone is trying to get us to realize is that this is the same God who did that. The same God that spoke into the chaos that was creation and formed order. God says, these things don't scare me. God reveals himself clearly in Jesus. Take courage because I am in control. He doesn't have to calm it this time. People wonder, did he calm it? What did he do here? doesn't matter. Whether he calms the storm or not, he is in control over it because he is God and he has revealed himself to be that. And so now let's go back to our heart postures. Remember, we have those four Here's the way that it might look instead, is life with God. Because life with God is different, because the goal is not to use God. The goal is God. And there's unbelievable freedom in that. There's unbelievable liberation in that idea that we don't, live to use God for things, but we live to desire God, to pursue God, to see God, to see him revealed in everything that we do all around us all the time. When our pursuit is God, we will never be disappointed. Our expectations will always be blown away. Because God continually lives up to them, and he doesn't have to prove he is who he is. He is. And that's worth pursuing in the first place. 
He ceases to be a device we employ or a commodity we consume because instead God becomes the focus of our desires. Before we can really desire God, we must have a clear understanding of who he is and what he is like. And we can reveal our desire with the question, do we long for him when he's absent? The worship band is going to come back up. And we're going to be listening for God once again. God reveals himself. We have so many answers to that question. Do we long for him when he's absent? So we're disappointed in our situation. Are you disappointed because God wasn't there? Or are you disappointed because you didn't get what you wanted? Our answers to that question reveal who we believe Jesus is. Our answer to that question reveals who we believe God is. That is he some sort of cosmic vending machine? Is he someone that's supposed to be answering all these questions for us? Or is he just who he is? And that he's worth pursuing on that basis alone. We pursue God because he is worthy of it, not for any other reason. In fact, God rises above all of our chaos to change nowhere into now here. We can change just one letter. We can change our expectation of what we come believing about God. That what God says is nowhere, in reality, he's now here. We pursue God because he is worthy of pursuit, and not any other reason. Because we will be disappointed when God doesn't show up. When we think that he's nowhere, we will be disappointed. But when we match our desire for his desire to be pursued, oh, what grace, what freedom, what liberty lives in a relationship like that. Will you pray with me now as we've come to see God? God, you have revealed yourself to us. <laughs> it's so much more than we imagined it to be. We so often are afflicted by this same thing. We miss the point entirely. And so, God, let our response this morning to your revelation, let our response this morning reflect a heart that's pursuing you, that wants to do life with you, God. Oh, come and change us. Come and change our hearts, God, because we cannot do this if we want something else in return. As you're speaking to us now in the silent parts, God, just reveal your glory to us. Reveal who you are. Help us to see you for you. Let us be transformed in your ways 
But above all, help us to desire you, to see you, and to know that even when we can't see you, you are not absent. You are not away. You are a God who is now here. Redeem us in your way, God. Redeem our hearts in your way. Don't let it be on our terms. Don't let it be because of the things that are in our hearts, but do it because you are worthy. You are glorious. You are a God who will do that, who will show up and speak to his people. There's no one like you, God. Help us to live in that way. Thank you. Oh, thank you, God, for being a God who wants to reveal himself, who wants to be a God who is known by his people. Because we can be refreshed in that. We can be liberated. We can be free when we pursue you. In your son's great name we say, amen. Will you stand and sing with us as we close out our service?